Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, we listen in to a kitchen table talk as people have their say on the future of food in Scotland. And then we hop over to Jersey to hear how one family farm is using nature's efficiencies to transform their production methods. We investigate what Brexit means for food supply chains and future food trade. There's an update from Northern Ireland as we hear about pig clubs. And finally, we'll leave you with a buzzing song to keep us all be-leaving. We begin in Glasgow at Katie's Kitchen Table. Here in Scotland, the public consultation on the Good Food Nation Bill is expected to start very soon. The idea is to create a wide-ranging piece of legislation that touches on several aspects of Scotland's relationship with food, from production to distribution to education and food culture. Nourish is a food NGO and a founding member of the Scottish Food Coalition. To capture as many views as possible before the official consultation starts, they've been encouraging people to hold kitchen table talks. The idea is that friends, neighbours or colleagues get together and talk about the past, present and possible future of food in Scotland. Then they feed back their top fives, their concerns about food in Scotland and the government actions they'd like to see. So I had some friends over for a talk. Here are just a few snippets. We started by sharing some of our childhood memories of food. Just eating sweets. <laughs> Loads of sweets. <laughs> it's amazing what a big part of my life as well it was my life revolved around it in a sense like you'd get your pocket money and that would be well I can buy this sweet or when new sweets came out it was really exciting in the playground so it would be a shame to take that away from them (laughs) in some sense I mean obviously we want better nutrition and better health but having grown up in a in a socialist Poland we actually didn't have any sweets so uh, my parents had a garden we would be eating like fruits from the tree until the of Tommy bursts. Sometimes my parents couldn't cook, they just brought stuff from canteen and that also wasn't very unhealthy or anything. It wasn't hardly ever fried. So thinking about it, actually my diet was better. I had way better food growing up in 80s in Poland mm-hmm. than I have uh, in 2018 in <laughs> Scotland. <laughs> by far, by far. When I was growing up, what we ate was very limited in some ways, and it was usually very seasonal. You know, even though I grew up in a council estate, everybody had a garden, but all the gardens were open. We used to kind of sneak into the garden across and steal the strawberries. But we used to grow things like, yeah, potatoes, carrots, um, rhubarb, you know. But I didn't eat like a pepper, you know, until I was an adult. I personally wouldn't mind going back to those times. And, you know, certainly you might have to give up certain foods, but I would, I would be fine with that. When I was growing up in Dunbar, like, a lot of my time, I was like, I guess I'll get a fish cake and a roll, because that's what I can afford to eat right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what you eat. Yeah. And, like, it's crap. And yeah. you're, like, mm-hmm. growing up, and it's not good for your mental health. And, you know, ethical concerns is, like, not a concern. No, no, like, going to Greg's and, and just having a fried product. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Yeah. Or yeah, like yeah. something carby and heavy yeah. and hot, like, and that's what you want. Mm. These are all like good concerns, but also, if you're going to talk on like a national policy level for Scotland, like, keep the gunpowder dry, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, because I, I think that is very relevant, and I think it is obviously important to remind ourselves that you know a lot of what we're talking about is just so far removed from most people's 
yeah. concerns and most people's kind of context when it comes to food. Um, and I guess my question would be how how can we create a situation in which you know living affordably does not mean eating badly and the double burden as Bella from Nourish pointed out of living in poverty and not being able to afford food that is actually going to nourish you mm. um, and having to then deal with the health consequences and rely on a national health service that is underfunded how do we get away from that a big part of that is cooking I haven't done the the maths but I don't think it is that expensive if you are buying the fruit and vegetables and cooking from scratch but if you want to go out and eat then it tends to be the unhealthy stuff that's cheaper but it does I guess take a bit more effort Mm. I I think we're in a really privileged situation where we've had the time the like resources to learn how to do that as well a lot of people I think will be like I've got bigger things to think about than sit down and learn how to cook and stuff where I can like you know survive if I do this quickly and get on and I've got other things to do I think it's like changing kind of the culture around food of like you know learning and encouraging cooking and encouraging it like that and showing the benefits of that through like education mm. showing me like this is how much money you can save and kind of getting that in when people are young like mm. I don't know, we do home ec in school, but like all we made was baked apples and like a big scone. Mm. But just like even simple things have been like, imagine look at this big soup that we can make and who can make it like the most like locally or like the cheapest way and like who can like bring in something new to it. And like, that's like a really nice thing you could do as a class. I think in parts of Japan, the way food is served at school is that the students have a rota and they serve it. So it's students serving students and it's, you know, freshly cooked and they talk about what they're eating that day as part of the curriculum, as Mm. part of their class. And they go through the menu. I mean, it would logistically be a big shift, but I think it could have huge ramifications. Mm. Or even I was thinking as well about how do you educate people or whatever Mm -hmm. to know how to cook stuff well. Um, I think I don't want to be told how to live yeah. and like the notion of somebody educating me about foods makes me like a bit like aggressive or something like mm. I don't want to go and be told how to live I think the only way that I learn about food and eating is by people like cooking for me <laughs> so like I <laughs> think so if, you, if you make it like if you're cooking <laughs> with someone or you go to somebody's house for dinner and it's like comfortable and you're part of it like that's mm-hmm. the prime time for learning about food and how to eat it you're so but right. I guess Given that what we're talking about here is what can the government do, mm-hmm. um, I think what you were saying about actually bringing that sort of experience into school mm-hmm. is a really important point, and that can maybe be one of our top five. When we talk about healthy, nutritious food needing to be available at very low prices for, so that everybody can afford them, but there are a lot of people who c- can easily afford their food who are still eating non-nutritious food and having health issues because of that or not making what would be classed as the right sort of health choices Mm. so a big part of it is economic but I think the cultural shift is really important. Related to the question of cultural shift which seems so huge there are so many institutions, schools, hospitals, you know even the museums around here anything that is government run the food tends to be shit. Mm. Um, Probably because they're trying to source the cheapest. And it's best value judged in very, very narrow terms. 
you know, that could be a really huge positive influence if institutions that are government, you know, state-funded, it's our money ultimately, you know, if they're state-funded or if they receive any kind of funding from the state, that actually it's not just about the bottom line and about cost, but actually it's where does this food come from? Is it nutritious? Is it produced ethically, etc., etc.? People in hospitals. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like I agree, but it's like, how do they monitor that? How do they measure that? There needs to be an established system of like measuring like ethicalness or localness or like value or like health giving properties or, or yeah, impacts on the NHS. Then maybe needs to be like a standardized system of like measuring that so that there could be some sort of like rating. And then if there was some sort of rating, then it could be applied wider than just public bodies if other people wanted to use that then they'd have well this is this is what good food looks like yeah. on a budget yeah for an organization although yeah. it's also defining joe what you just mentioned which is what do we call what do we define as good mm-hmm. i think especially in scotland or maybe especially in the uk it's a loaded question because you start because of class yeah yeah and why and i'm and why 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 discuss <laughs> one of the reasons sometimes where I have not chosen like the healthy thing slash maybe the thing that I actually want what you choose to eat is like a symbolic thing of who you, it's like an identity thing people would judge you you know if you start thinking that you're above yourself or whatever mm-hmm. this is why it's so such an interesting cultural question and you have to be really delicate about it yeah. and probably do it in schools with kids yeah. mm-hmm. in a non-patronising yeah. very yeah. careful way yeah to throw it slightly more open for me, part of the problem is that food is a commodity and food is something that is traded and invested in. I think um, land ownership might have mm. something to, like, most of the land in Scotland is owned by, like, very few people um, and it's very expensive. Land is very expensive. That whole system of, like, land ownership reform needs to maybe be looked at and to help other like more kind of smaller businesses get into farming maybe and yeah just to kind of support farmers who are trying to do the right thing or totally and I think off the back of that thinking more about longevity and resilience you know and that's why more kind of conducive conditions for things like community supported agriculture or you know models where maybe you have more people on the land and maybe the profit margin isn't as great but you know that this is a model that is actually going to survive for Mm. the next 5, 10, 20, 30, however many years and shifting the focus away from, again, away from food as industry and food as commodity to food as fundamental. Yeah, and right, I mean, that's something Nourish are really keen to push Mm. is the right to food. Which I hadn't really thought about in those terms before was how bizarre it is that we accept that there should be a universal right to education and there should be a universal right to healthcare, but we don't have that kind of concept of universal right to food or good food. It's brilliant to hear people with different experiences come together and discuss what they want for the future of food in Scotland. Katie. What were the final five recommendations you came up with? They're all very much intertwined, of course, but number one was education. This is what we kept coming back to. Making food an integral part of the curriculum from an early age and teaching cooking as a normal, easy, cheap thing to do. Number two, 
reframing what we see as good value when it comes to serving food in state-run or state-funded institutions, focusing not just on the upfront cost, but accounting for the food's nutritional value and its environmental impact and ethics as well. Number three, land. Democratising land ownership in Scotland, making it easier for smaller scale, mixed, resilient farming models to gain a foothold. Four, creating more incentives, maybe tax incentives, to produce nutritious food, shifting the emphasis away from high value exports and tourist draws to feeding people here. And number five, placing access to good food on the same footing as access to education or healthcare, turning it from a money and class related privilege into a basic right. If you'd like to know more, then you should listen to our latest short. It's an interview with Bella Crow from Nourish about the Good Food Nation Bill and the work they are doing to ensure the bill is as strong and effective as possible. Everyone loves a Jersey royal potato. The island is famed for them and they dominate Jersey's agricultural sector. But some farmers are realizing that high input potato production is diminishing their resources. We spoke to young farmer Justin Legrayley at Anvil Farm about their first attempt to produce potatoes and vegetables with zero external inputs. And importantly, how they're using microscopes and compost extracts to guide bacterial and fungal populations. My name is Justin Legrayley, I'm from Jersey. Uh, we're based on the east side of the island at Anvil Farm. Family farm we've been sort of running at Anvil Farm since about 1958. And I guess now, ultimately, we're market gardeners. But we have exported to the UK, a little bit to Europe. Um, but now, we, what we'd really like to do is basically focus on getting the best possible produce out to those that live on the island. I studied architecture and so obviously was away from the island. Moved back to Jersey and a lot had changed on our family farm. It was just my dad and my mum and staffing becomes to be quite a big issue on, on the island. And so we were sort of looking at, at how we could reduce uh, our inputs, but also how we could be more efficient and effective with our time by sort of working with nature rather than against it. We'd been doing a lot for export for supermarkets and so the ground, to be honest with you, is quite tired. You know, Jersey Royals are, are early season, so the, the soil was sort of working for us from February to, well, sometimes all the way through because we'd be doing broccoli and stuff with very little rest. So it definitely needed some rejuvenation, which is when I think we got in touch with Promessa Soils uh, and Glyn Mitchell. And I started doing some other bits of research as well, looking to the States for inspiration, looking at cover crops and that sort of thing. And it's still early days for us, I'll be honest. But yeah, it's, it's been a, a fun journey so far. So we built a really large new tunnel and we thought, you know what, that'd be a perfect place to trial sort of compost teas, compost extracts, keeping living roots in the soil, uh, mulching, no-till, that sort of thing. So this new tunnel site we uh, called Glen up and we 
basically did a, a, a huge trial uh, for us anyway in that space uh, and then sort of looked at what happened so obviously we started that season with Jersey Royals no chemical input whatsoever not even fertilizer um, just planted vetch alongside the Royals to get a bit of nitrogen in there just before that we'd, we'd actually put some compost extract to sort of boost microbe numbers and to get the the soil sort of working for us I had a you know a perfectly normal harvest from it you know without any input so great fantastic um, and then we sort of moved on to our normal sort of summer crop so really mixed variety of salads and pak choy and spring onion and all sorts of stuff just to see you know what happened and yeah some some interesting results you know walking up to the pak choy and finding it wasn't shredded turning over lettuce leaves and seeing some dead bugs like green fly and stuff after a, a folio feed of uh, compost tea you know the whole thing being that if your plants are fit and healthy um, like us if we're fit and healthy we can repel viruses and things um, that's sort of how the theory goes yeah it's sort of just continued from there we make thermocomposts um, so I have to hold that compost at between 55 and 65 degrees I think for 15 days but within that you can change sort of the characteristics and the properties of the compost by putting different things in um, whether you have a higher ratio of green or brown material to make it either bacterial or fungal but then equally you know I'm always on the hunt for mushrooms to try and boost the levels of fungi or looking for bits of moss ultimately the more diversity the better because we're trying to just improve our soil uh, and build it back to what it was and what it should be I don't understand this fully yet um, but you know the majority of our fields are quite bacterial which for things like brassicas is not a bad thing brassicas don't do particularly well in a, a fungal dominated soil apparently but ultimately a 50 50 fungi to bacteria is ideal for growing the majority of a veg I've just finished the microscope course and it basically allows us to look at the microbes that we have in our soil. It will also let you look at the microbes that you might be putting into the soil through either compost extracts or compost teas because you can analyse your current soil state, you can analyse your composts, you can analyse your compost extracts and compost teas and then obviously you can analyse it all after a, a dose of compost extract. Obviously, it's not a standalone, the whole compost tea thing, you know, so we're looking at really diverse cover crops, sort of 10 or more, and using intercropping or even using cover crops amongst crops that we're selling. And I think the thing for, for us as well is actually how do you work the compost tea into your agricultural system? We're all different scales. Um, we all have different equipment. I welded rods on the back, onto the back of our subsoiler so that we can put the microbes underground. That works for us, might not for someone else. Other people have more capital and they can go and buy something that fits much better. You can get it to work for you, but it can be a really beneficial add-on to the system that you already have. We're really going going home with it. Um, you know, we have our own compost tea brewer, um, so we're just going to put it out as much as we can across the whole of our farm. Um, we're in sort of a, I guess, a, an unusual situation for Jersey in that we only farm 
our own land, which is about 48 acres, which should be considered quite small. Um, but when it's only me and my dad and my mum, it's quite a lot to, to do. Um, so we're just, yeah, we're just going to slowly implement that across the whole of our farm and, and just keep sort of monitoring how, how things change. If you can make your own sort of fertility on site, and you can have things that are, are going to help your crops to grow healthily without really spending any money, you know, that's, that's great. And also I think, you know, this year it's been really encouraging for us. We've had chefs who've called us up just to say thanks for the veg, it's the best we've had. Or, you know, I never used to like beetroot. You know, this is a chef who's travelled around the world. Tried yours, it's amazing. You know, just those little things, like, surely this is working. More of that would be fantastic. That's amazing to hear that chefs have called them up to say they've produced some of the best vegetables they've ever tasted. It really does remind me that healthy soils means healthy plants, means tasty veg, and then healthy and happy people. There's been lots of excitement here in the UK as farming ministers seem to be pushing for more environmentally sound farming methods as we move away from EU regulations. And that reminds us, if you do live in the UK, then there's only one week left to respond to the draft version of the agricultural bill, Health and Harmony, the Future of Food, Farming and the Environment in a Green Brexit, which sets out the government's ambitions for farming in England and seeks the views of all readers on its proposals. This will dictate government policy in farming for many years to come, and now is the time to get your voice heard. Please do visit the gov.uk site and have your say. It's not just farmers who need to respond, but anyone who cares about the environment or eats food. So that's everyone. You can find the link on all our social media channels. Another outcome of leaving the EU is potential new trade deals. Tim Lang is Professor of Food Policy at City University London's Centre for Food Policy. He's well-versed on what a hard or soft Brexit could mean for British farmers. He spoke to Marianne Lanzettel for Farmerama. Now, at the moment, we still don't know what kind of a Brexit it will be. Could you draw these two pictures of what a hard Brexit would mean for farming and what staying in the single market and aligned with the European market would also be meaning for farmers. A so-called hard Brexit would mean basically leaving the European Union, the single market, the customs union and forging our own new trade deals. Almost certainly that would mean turning to other parts of the world to feed the British with the cheap food to which they become accustomed and almost certainly that will send not all but heavy proportions of British farming into decline because they won't be able to compete with the west coast of Africa, with the United States on beef or, or Brazil or Australia and, or even China on onions. I mean, if we really go that way, um, some of the private estimates that have been talked about in farming think tanks of 50%, sometimes I've seen one estimate of 75% of farms go in Britain. Uh, is how a British farmer is going to survive economically. 
because the subsidy is going to go. The subsidy, that's why the Secretary of State for uh, England today announced extending the subsidies till 2024 because he knows, and the DEFRA now knows, what I'm talking about. Uh, in which case they don't want that crisis to happen on their watch. How much better, in inverted commas, would it be if we stayed uh, more aligned to uh, the European Union? Would that really save British farmers or would it still throw up considerable problems? British farmers have been declining slowly in numbers within the European Union. The point is this is maybe a disruption which will accelerate that trend. Um, I'm not necessarily arguing in favour of Nirvana being in the EU. It clearly isn't. But I'm merely saying that the disruption, the speed of the disruption, is itself now a factor. Uh, and most of us who are in the EU, have been in the EU, have been highly critical of the form it takes and have been arguing to build up the sustainability direction over, if you like, the industrialised food direction. If we go a hard Brexit, that disruption takes away the sustainability element. Whatever the Secretary of State says, he cannot deliver higher food standards, except for a very elite minority, for mass food. It just can't happen. The economics will determine the driving down of prices and going for sources which are cheaper, which means going abroad. Britain gets 30% of its, 31% of its food from within the European Union. If that immediately is behind a tariff wall, where's it going to come from? Uh, the Secretary of State also said that he only wants to give money to those who deliver benefits for the environment and, and for the popular good. Now that also can be seen as a real hindrance for, uh, for trade. So he said any trade policy would be decided within Parliament. How do you see the chances that uh, if push comes to shove, British Parliament would say no to a trade deal because people in Britain want to to look after the environment and, and want to keep the countryside. I think the politics of all of this is completely up in the air, frankly. The British public voted, rightly or wrongly, on a very stark in-out question. Now the complexity is coming through. Uh, what I don't see is the political leadership is giving voice to that. There's a bit of it, but that's mainly because the politics of Britain is split. The Conservative Party is split itself, even the Cabinet is split, the Labour Party is split, has been doing a very gentle, gradually getting more pro, staying in some sort of contact with the European Union, but hasn't come out clean about that, so we basically don't know. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. We now have one-year contracts in the food system will begin to be given in by March, which are going to determine food prices for March 2019. The British public is just in never never land at the moment it doesn't know what it's about to do. brexit is another reminder that smaller scale more ecologically minded farmers around the world need to stick together of course government policies and international trade deals have a huge impact on us but ultimately it's the spirit of the people and their connection to the land that keeps us all going the more we relocalize our food systems and focus on the smaller scale the less vulnerable will be to the impacts of these policies. So, as ever, a big shout out and thank you to all you smaller scale producers out there. You are key to all of our futures. We hope you enjoy listening to Farmerama as much as we enjoy making it. 
A lot of work goes into each episode, so we're always really grateful for support. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, or if you know someone you think might be, please do get in touch with us through our website, farmarama.co. A few months ago, we heard from Johnny Hansen at Jubilee Farm, Northern Ireland's first community-supported agriculture scheme. Last month, they officially launched their pig club. Johnny chatted to Dr. Jude Stevens, a smallholder turned lecturer at Queen's University Belfast, about the promise of pig clubs. We're back at Jubilee Farm this month for the launch of our pig club, where 24 families have each booked in advance and paid for a quarter pig, and recently arrived are seven finishers at 16 weeks old, crossed between large black and glosterol spots. And they're with us at the moment, tucking into a hearty dinner this evening. This month I'm with Dr. Jude Stevens, who before her current job as lecturer in leadership for sustainable development at Queen's University Belfast, was a smallholder and kept, among other things, poultry and goats and pigs. Jude, I just wanted to ask you about how you felt pig clubs like this, as well as other examples of community-supported agriculture, how they help to reconnect people with food production and also with food producers. I think increasingly nowadays people are starting to ask questions about where their food comes from and they want to know not only that the food is wholesome and has been produced perhaps organically but certainly in a way that doesn't, isn't detrimental to the environment. But another issue is animal welfare. Being able to be part of the process whereby your pig or whatever other animal it happens to be is raised, to be able to make contact with it, actually gives your food a face again, if you'll excuse the expression, because it's not just a packet of bacon on a shelf, it's, it's a living creature and you've had that opportunity to see where it sits in the overall scheme of farming. Jude, in your, your day job you teach a master's course at Queen's in leadership for sustainable development and also leadership for sustainable rural development. How do you feel that food schemes like this, CSS schemes like pig clubs, that share the risks and as well as the rewards between producer and consumer. How does that help to promote leadership for sustainable agriculture? Anybody who's interested in sustainable agriculture um, will have an understanding of the environment, but also of things like the social economy um, and where our food sits within a local economy. Um, people are more aware of their carbon footprint, uh, how their food is being raised and transported, animal welfare issues, uh, and just a generally wider understanding of why we need to connect with our food more broadly. And doing that by example um, is one of the best possible ways to help other people understand um, why it is necessary. And we're amongst seven wonderful porkers at the moment. Um, that just illustrates so nicely how this can be done through community-supported agriculture. So there we have it this month from Jubilee Farm, from happy pigs and happy people. And finally, since we're in a bit of a political mood this month, we had to share this song from the Believers. It's a catchy tune with a very serious message. A plea to Michael Gove, 
UK Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs to keep his word and support a ban on neonicotinoid insecticides. And I'm delighted to say that we're featuring the song in celebration. On the 27th of April, EU member states, including the UK, voted for a near-complete ban. Cheers to that. Thank you for listening. Farmerama is produced by Abby Rose, me, Katie Revel, and the ace behind the scenes, Joe Barrett. Thank you today to our reporters, Johnny Hansen and Mariana Lanzettel, and of course to all of our guests. Special thanks from me to the Kitchen Table Talk participants, Joe, Jamie, Christopher, Julie, Charlotte, Anne, and Marcin. Our music is by Owen Barrett, and Annie Landless keeps you all up to date on social media. Thank you both. See you next month.